My dear brethren, tonight we want to consider further in the Word of God the godly perspective to what happened this past Tuesday. I am not going to review what I covered this morning in the sake of time, so I want to take up immediately in Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Did you know that the World Trade Center was in Luke chapter 13? Or at least a tower close enough for us to use as an example of the attitude and spirit we ought to have. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell, and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. We have here an example of a falling tower that killed 18 men. And the Lord Jesus Christ raises this example from the current events of his day to ask those that were there with him, that were present at that season, do you reason in your minds? that because this tower fell, an act of God, because this tower fell and killed 18, that those 18 were more wicked than all the men of Jerusalem? That is our natural tendency to reason. When we see adversity in someone else's life, we want to reason that they must have sin and God's judging them. When adversity comes in our life, the Lord must be trying us to make our faith greater. Is that true, or am I the only profane reasoner here tonight? Isn't that how we think? When it's someone else, God's judging them. When it's us, he's perfecting us. But the Lord Jesus Christ cut to the chase fast in verse 5. He said, I tell you, that is not correct reasoning. Nay, do not reason that way. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Now, I wish on Friday, when the nation's pastor, Billy Graham, ascended into that lofty pulpit in the Episcopal Cathedral in Washington, or when our president stepped up there, he had taken with him a 66 caliber book, and he had opened to this passage, and he had read verses 4 and 5 and call the nation to repentance. And brethren, when I spoke to you this morning and I said, I wish that I had heard one of those two men, the others there weren't capable of it, but if I had heard one of those two men drop the hammer, it would have been a blessing. The reason I use those words is from this passage in Jeremiah 23. You don't need to turn to it because I, I am chasing a rabbit. It says there about God's pastors, In Jeremiah 23 and 29, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? 
Now, Luke 13 directs our attention in the, in the direction in which it ought to be looking. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And that's the message that we ought to get from what happened this past Tuesday. Great adversity and obvious acts of God do not prove the sinfulness upon those upon which it fell. Right. It does not prove the sinfulness of those that are under that adversity. Do you remember three men that reasoned that way? Job's miserable comforters. Their Job is under the trying hand of God, and his three friends come along, and with friends like that, who needs enemies? And they told Job that it was all because he was hiding secret sins, and that if he would just repent of his secret sins, the trouble would end. That wasn't the case. And God was angry with those three men, and they had to come and beg Job to pray for them in the end that God might, might forgive them for misapplying his sovereignty in the events of Job's life. Good and evil are mingled in this life. You cannot know God's love or God's hatred by things that occur naturally. Right. Ecclesiastes 9.1 teaches us that. I'm not even going to turn to it, but it's a plain statement that you cannot know love or hatred by the things you observe in this life. Some that appear not to be very blessed may be God's favorites. Some that appear to have all the money, all the looks, and all the intelligence may be God's reprobates, and he's passed them by completely. Right. In fact, the order of the word of God is that his saints will be chosen from the base and the poor and the weak and the foolish of this world. Right. And he has passed by the rich and the famous and the noble and the wise. We are all great sinners by nature. And there is no difference. So when adversity comes, it's by the choice of God, and we do not know his secret will in those things. Rather, we ought to repent and not to judge others. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. We need to examine ourselves and be quick to judge ourselves rather than quick to judge others. Right. Let me move on. Except ye repent ye shall all likewise perish. Wouldn't those words have been perfect on Friday? Amen. Children do not need to be protected from what happened this past Tuesday. I have listened to some of the most pitiful reasoning, and it's all by women who don't know, foolish women as the Bible would call them, who don't think children ought to even view it on television. Listen, my friends, there's two reasons why. If if things are presented in a framework and a perspective of God is in charge right. and truth, they can handle it because God limits the ability that they can understand either mentally or emotionally. If they're too young, it goes right over their heads. Right. And if they're old enough to understand, if it's presented in a perspective of God is in charge, God is sovereign, God will take care of us, and, and in a perspective of truth, it is a safe perspective in which children can see things like this. Brethren, we should not save our children from reality. We should show them reality with a perspective of God's sovereignty around it and over it and under it. That prepares them for their lives, not protecting them from reality. 
We have so sanitized and sterilized our lives that they don't get to see reality. Do you know what is reality? It is appointed unto men once to die. Death is reality. Amen. When we used to live on farms, they saw it all the time in the animals that they took care of. When we used to live without all these hospitals and, and hospices and retirement homes, guess where grandpa passed away? In the child's bedroom. Amen. They saw death. And death is not something that is dangerous. Death is helpful because it keeps us sober and it reminds us of the brevity of life. Right. And when it's presented in a perspective of God is in charge and Jesus Christ is the Savior and hope against death and the victor over death, it is a good thing, right. not a bad thing. They need to know that people are wicked and have malice in their hearts so deep that they would sacrifice their own lives to kill others. And to present it in a perspective of God's Word is good. Children are far more resilient than psychologists and parents want to admit today. God has limited their mental and emotional capacity so that it just goes through them and past them and beyond them. If they're too young, it doesn't affect them because they can't even grasp it. They have no vocabulary nor experience to even understand what they're seeing. And if they're old enough to have a vocabulary and experience to understand what they're seeing, then they can also understand the words that you put around it from God's word Amen. and the Bible says fathers 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 bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 if you go back and look at the law of God the grossest most perverse sins were preached openly you'd have more questions at your dinner table from your children than you ever got from a sermon of mine if you were to read Deuteronomy 27, Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 20, and Ezekiel 23, you'd get a whole lot more than you get from mine. And the Lord did that. Right. Because as long as it's in a perspective of God hates such sins, and such sinners are to be put to death, that's a proper perspective to hear those things. Right. You know, these same social do-gooders that didn't want children viewing the replays of what happened at the World Trade Center are the same ones that allow some of the best paid professionals in our nation to be rap music performers and entertainers in Hollywood that just show us gratuitous violence all the time. Can you please explain that to me? How they don't want children to see the real world, but they want them to look at a pretend world that is filled with gratuitous violence. Let's move on. Psalm 46. Psalm 46. How much fear should there be in a Christian's life? None. Christians should not have fear in their lives. Rumors should not bother Christians. Look at Psalm 46. These are verses that you know, but at a time like this, we want to lay hold of these verses. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Do you believe that verse? Amen. What a powerful verse and a promise. God is our refuge, a place to hide, and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah. We will not fear, 
even if the earth is removed. Right. Now, what if the earth were to go off course and start running through the sky? Did you see how excited they got this past Tuesday? How excited would they get if the earth left its orbit and started off through the heavens? Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah, we will not fear. That is someone who has their trust in God. Right. Fear is not the part of a Christian's vocabulary, except the fear of the Lord. Amen. Not the fear of things that can happen to us here. Jesus said, fear not them that kill the body. What's the worst thing that someone can do to you here? Kill your body and let you go home to heaven sooner. So there's nothing to fear. Fear is not part of a Christian's life. Look at Psalm 4. Psalm 4. And why does a Christian not fear? Because God is our refuge and our strength and a very present help in time of trouble. If the earth was running off its orbit, that would be a time of trouble. Is the, is the Lord a very present? Would he be there? If we were running out past Pluto, yes, the Lord would be with us. He'd still be our refuge and our strength. Remind me of these verses. You know, that's why we come together in a church. That when it, things are going to happen to us over the next 50 years. Do you know why we're in an assembly? To encourage one another when those things come. That we will hold fast our profession of faith. Psalm 4 and verse 8. I love this verse. You know, some of these verses, wouldn't you want to type them on a piece of paper and tuck them in a shoulder in a soldier's pocket when he went off to war? You know, it's nice being here in the comfort of 50 believers, but what if you're out in a foxhole with imminent death around you? Look at Psalm 4, 8. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Yeah. Isn't that a great verse? I will both. That means there's two things under consideration here. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. It's not cleaning your gun one more time. You want to make sure it's clean. You want to make sure it's clean. But it's not cleaning it one more time. It's putting your trust in the Lord. He is the one that keeps us safe. Right. Fear is not part of a Christian's life. Do you know what the Bible says about those in hell? In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, the first two characteristics of those that are in hell, according, in the, in the lake of fire, Revelation 21 and verse 8, the fearful and the unbelieving. Those are sober words. You know, it doesn't say sodomites. It doesn't say adulterers. It doesn't say murderers. It says the fearful and the unbelieving. Because those are ones that have turned their back on God because someone that's put their trust in God shouldn't be afraid. Right. Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Is that an easy question for you to answer? Amen. There's no one to fear. Right. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? No one. When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart 
shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me, he shall set me up upon a rock. Amen. This safety and this confidence and this lack of fear in a man's life is flowing out of verse 4 because verse 4 is describing the character of such a man. His first desire in life was to seek the things of the Lord. And because he put the Lord first, the Lord took away his fear and gave him confidence. And if we will seek the Lord first, we can have the same attitude toward events in life as the psalmist did in these five verses. A verse that we used last Sunday in the ordination that we had, God has not given us the spirit of fear. God does not give the spirit of fear. That spirit of fear comes from another source. But God has given us the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. We need to keep our minds stayed on the Lord God. If you were to watch all of the media replays of the events of this past Tuesday, you did not hear any reference to God. So if you were to watch it enough times and you were weak enough, you would be looking at an event that looked overwhelming with all the different camera angles they're able to give you, but there's no mention of God. And so we in our homes must bring to bear the word of God. That in light of what God has said, there's no reason to be afraid. Amen. And we need to teach our children that from their youth up. Let's move on. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. It's one of the memory verses that we've had in the last few months. Hebrews 11, 6. Now, I've been reading and hearing about something that's new, and that is that faith is good for people. Reader's Digest has had articles, and I've heard many references to some that made it out of the rubble or made it out of the buildings in New York and were interviewed. They said, what, what, what held you together? What kept you calm running down all those flights of stairs? My faith. And they spoke of faith as a thing unto itself. Listen, faith has no value if it's not focused on an object. Right. Do you know what they're excited about today? Faith in faith. I'm serious. Faith in faith. A recent Reader's Digest article has pointed out how good it is for people in, in the hospital who are suffering from a difficult disease or maybe even a terminal disease to have faith. Now, they don't dare speak of the faith of the Bible because their circulation would dip. But they're speaking of faith in faith. We don't want faith in faith. We have to have faith in God. Amen. It's not just faith. It's the God that's the object of our faith. Hebrews 11:6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. And now he's going to explain what that faith is. This is the definition of faith. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, 
and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That is faith. Faith in God and faith in faith are two very different things. You are going to find that it's now politically correct and socially acceptable to talk about faith as a thing of its own. But faith without the object being the creator God of heaven and his son Jesus Christ is no faith at all. It's wasted faith. It's faith in a lie. Because there is only one sure thing in this universe. Only one. And that's the Lord God. And him alone. And all faith must rest in him. They use the word faith. Those of you who turned your televisions on, did you hear the word faith? Faith? Yeah, I heard it. I've heard it. I've read it. But you didn't hear the word God. You didn't hear prayer, except from our president. You didn't ever hear anyone in our media suggesting to a survivor that they pray or to a victim's family that they pray. You didn't hear that. Not on our networks. You didn't hear about God, his providence, the sovereignty of God, self-examination, guilt, repentance, heaven, hell, sin, pride, thankfulness, fear. You didn't hear those things. Right. Because they weren't focused on faith in God. Because faith in God is, there's a God in heaven. If you survive that accident, you ought to give him praise and thanksgiving. If you have someone in there, you ought to be praying to the God in heaven who's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That is faith in God. Faith in God in that way can save you in such events. Look at Psalm 27 again. I want to go to the verse at the end of that chapter. It's a precious verse. What faith in God can do for someone who is tempted to faint, tempted to be frightened, in a situation where they could be fearful. Psalm 27 and verse 13 <clears throat> I had fainted. I would have fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That is faith. Amen. Faith that says things look rough right now, but I believe I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of living, and that will propel you through whatever you're in the middle of. And it's faith that does that. Trusting in God and God as a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Let's move on. Further, in a godly perspective regarding what happened this past Tuesday, bad theology shows up when it's tried by an event like this past Tuesday. Oh, we heard people coming out of those buildings saying, Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Well, now they had never cried on God, cried to God before. They didn't know him, and he didn't know them, and they didn't want to live for him, but they wanted to use his name in vain. Instead of just spitting those short little sentences out, why weren't they on their knees praying to that God? Right. Instead of just using it as an exclamation. We better be careful about how we use God's name. The Bible tells us that over and over. It's one of the Ten Commandments that we've been taught not to use his name in vain. Brethren, God's ways and God's thoughts are higher than ours, and we ought not to try to measure God by the way we look at things. Right. I mean, it's pitiful. 
If you were to ask Robert Schuller to be consistent with what he's taught for the last 30 years in this country about what the problem is with Osama bin Laden, do you know what he'd say? The man doesn't have enough self-esteem. That theology comes home to roost when you have an event like this. The lack of sound doctrine, because there is no longer any doctrine taught in this country, hardly any. The churches of this country are now addicted to entertainment and pleasant little sermonettes that will make everyone feel good rather than sound doctrine. The lack of sound doctrine leaves people with a false concept of God, which comes back to haunt them in a time of crisis because they don't have a foundation that's based on truth. They cannot understand how God could allow anything like that to happen. And brethren, as soon as you don't understand how God could allow a thing like that to happen, then it must have happened because of another source, which means that this life is chaotic. It's nothing but chaos. It's uncertain. It's hopeless. And that is not a way to live and stay sane. Sanity is grounded on the rock of Christ Jesus, our Lord, who is the Lord of heaven and earth. The minute you get moved off that rock by not being established, that even evil events are under the control and the sovereignty and providence of God, you are going to get moved. This morning I told you, for those of you that heard Billy Graham's remarks, you know, when he walked up into that pulpit, I was sitting there begging God that he might drop the hammer. But he didn't drop the hammer. He didn't have a hammer. He said, some of you may be angry against God. I want you to know that God understands your anger against him. I told you that one this morning, and I gave you the Bible answer for it. That's heresy. Right. God cannot stand us being angry with him, and it's totally uncalled for, and that's blasphemy to even suggest that it's allowable. The Bible says, God forbid that we would ever even question God. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Isaiah 45 and verse 9. Billy Graham said, I don't understand evil. I can't help those who ask me about the origin and nature of evil. I don't understand it. I haven't, I don't have an answer for it because it's a mystery. And then he proceeded to quote 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, my brethren, that says the three words, mystery of iniquity. He used 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, which is describing something that is totally well known by all Bible believers in the last 2,000 years as being the man of sin. The mystery of iniquity is simply another way to describe the man of sin. It's the Antichrist of Revelation chapter 17, verses 5 and 6. Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. It wasn't speaking a thing about the nature of evil. You know where evil came from. Evil is sin and rebellion against God. Lucifer started it. He brought it into this world. Our parents brought it into the human race. Because of their sins, we're all condemned to death. Jesus Christ died and put it away. And we're going to live in a heaven that's totally free from it. Amen. Billy Graham said on Friday in that same little sermonette, the nation's spirit will rise and save us in this hour of grief. I don't know what he's talking about. Because the spirit of God is the spirit that we need to save us, not the spirit of the nation. Amen. Amen. 
I wish he just spoke about the Spirit of God. This nation's spirit is proud and wicked. We need a different spirit for God to bless us truly. He did call for repentance, and I got excited when he got to a sentence where he said that this nation ought to repent for its sins. But then what does that mean coming from a man who's just followed a Muslim, a Catholic, and others who address the Hindus and the Buddhists in the crowd and women preachers, all of which are condemned by the Bible? What's he doing up there calling us to repent when he should have been dropping the hammer on himself and all that was going on in that service? Right. Bad theology shows up when it's put under the stress of an event like this. What we heard, studied this morning from the Word of God is in answer to the question, shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? No, there's no evil in a city that the Lord has not done. We should look at that as the hand of God waking us up as it was prayed tonight, a wake-up call for us to examine our hearts and for this nation to examine itself and to repent for our sins. This event has united our nation. I guess someone told me that a new banner that's now popular is One Nation Under God, United We Stand, or something, In God We Trust, United We Stand. This event hasn't united our nation in any good or godly way. It simply united us because we now have a common enemy to hate. Hate works that way. And so now we're all upset. And listen, it swells in all of us because we don't like little people coming over and messing with our nation. It makes us want to fight back. But that unity that we get out of that is not godly unity because there has been no, there has been no repentance or no truth, and God is not the basis for the unity. It's simply that we have a common enemy in the flesh, and our warfare as Christians is not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Someone will say, but it was good. Listen, because we have many faiths in our nation, that prayer service had to have all sorts of people there. We know there were Hindus there, and Buddhists, and Muslims, and Catholics, and Baptists. They were all there. Isn't unity good? No. Unity isn't good. And it's not godly. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 19. Second Chronicles chapter 19. There's only one way to have unity. Based on truth. Based on God. The, the Bible tells us in James chapter 3, the wisdom that cometh from above is first pure, then peaceable. We'll make peace with anyone if the condition for the peace can be the purity of God's word Amen. and what God has said. Second Chronicles chapter 19, this was a good king. Right. Verse 1, And Jehoshaphat the king of Judah returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. And Jehu the son of Hanani the seer went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly? And love them that hate the Lord? Wherefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord? This good king was rebuked. This is the, the previous chapter is when Ahab was killed by the arrow drawn at a venture by the providence and sovereignty of God. But when Jehoshaphat gets back, a son of David, one who loved the Lord and was a good king, the Lord wanted to tell him that wrath was coming upon him 
because he had gone into unity, he had gone into a confederacy with the wicked king Ahab. What does the Bible tell us in the New Testament? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. When you have a minister standing in the pulpit that has to apologize for closing his prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, there's a problem. There's a problem. You don't ever apologize for using the greatest name in this universe, the name that is above every name, and is certainly above any name like Muhammad. Did you know that some man got up and and opened his prayer to God, the father of Abraham, Muhammad, and Jesus? That's blasphemy. We don't even say those names in the same sentence. What does the Bible say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6? What fellowship or communion does light have with darkness? There is no fellowship. That service shouldn't have been held that way. It should have been held with us going back to God's word. And the, the bottom line of this is going to be America's in trouble. America is in trouble. And you know, when God leaves a nation, it's not fun to go to battle for that nation anymore. Because when God withdraws his blessing, and he has blessed this nation mightily, you want you look back at World War II and see the blessing on this nation. How many battles were we fighting on how many fronts? We were supplying everyone that was fighting on our side. The Lord has blessed this nation, but when the Lord stops blessing, it's a horrible place to go to battle. You know, Israel knew that in the days of King Saul. Saul knew that God had withdrawn his presence from Saul, but the Philistines were at the door, and Saul had to go to battle. Do you know what he did? He took the Ark of the Covenant. He thought the Ark of the Covenant, the form of godliness, would help him, even though God in his spirit had left the nation. Do you remember what happened? Saul died that day, his sons died that day, and the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines, and Israel was defeated. And the priests of God died that day also. And Eli, when he heard the news that Saul was dead, the priests were dead, and the ark was stolen, he fell off a stone where he was sitting and died himself. You know, when the Lord's on your side, like he was on the side of Oliver Cromwell a few hundred years ago, because Oliver Cromwell was fighting for the Lord, as far as we can tell and as much as we know, which is very limited, given that we're several hundred years removed, you know, to go into battle singing hymns and and know that God is on your side because you're trying to obey his word is a great way to go to battle. Great way to go to battle. But when the Lord leaves a nation, who wants to go and take up arms for that nation when the Lord's left it? We need to seek the Lord to have him bless this nation even in military efforts to protect ourselves. Unity is going to get us destroyed. Second Corinthians chapter 6 says, Come out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And ye shall be my sons and daughters, and I will be to you a God. Based on not compromising, based on not having unity with error. Let's move on. Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Oh, I hope you know when I say chapter, when I say Psalm 127, I hope you know verse 1, and I hope you know verse 2. These are life-saving verses. Right. 
all of the talk, all of the talk that we're getting are the extra safety measures that we're going to make to keep this from happening in the future. You know, we're going to put Delta Force commandos on every flight. We're going to put U.S. Marshals on the flight. You're not going to be allowed to even bring a plastic knife onto an airplane. I mean, they've got 30 new rules for airports. You know, you can't drop your baggage out there in the sidewalk anymore. On and on they go with precautions, and they're getting the military geared up, and they're calling up reserves, but that isn't good enough. Right. We have to start with the Lord because of this verse. Psalm 127 and verse 1. Amen. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. I know what your flesh says. There is no nation on earth right now that can challenge the United States. There was no nation on earth in the time of Nebuchadnezzar that could challenge Babylon. But it went down in one night. The Lord likes to do things that way to show the nations that they are but men. Except the Lord keep this country, it will not be kept no matter what kind of sophisticated weapons we have, and we have some new ones that you have never seen before. I'll send you another email. This is way off the subject, and I don't like doing this very often, but I'll send you an email from Jane's that lists all the new stuff that we're going to try out in Afghanistan. And it's pretty spiffy. It looks like Buck Rogers has come back. You know, there's going to be men eating porridge in caves, and we're going to have some pretty neat stuff that looks right in those caves. But, except the Lord keep the country and the Lord bless the military, it's all in vain. But that's all they talk about. All the precautionary measures they're going to take and gearing up our military. Both of which are good, but they come second. This verse doesn't say that we don't labor to build our houses. And this verse doesn't say that we don't have a watchman. But it says, unless the Lord blesses the laborers, and blesses the watchman, the house doesn't get built, and the city is not kept. Look at Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs 21. I love our nation, as far as the love of a nation should go. I do. You know who is living in my house right now? I wanted her to taste the goodness of God in our nation. But the greatest blessing we have is what we're doing right now. It's the freedom to preach God's word and the love of it. I'm scared about the future of our country. You know, she comes over here and the first week she's here, look what happens. I did ask her if she wanted to go back because it wasn't safe to live in America any longer. But she doesn't want to go back. Proverbs 21 and verse 31. She got a big smile and said, not Kazakhstan. Listen to this verse. The horse is prepared against the day of battle. Is it wise for a president and a nation to have a good military? Absolutely. In the, well, they didn't have Abrams tanks in this day, so you've got to understand what they did have. They had horses prepared against the day of battle. But what does the verse tell us? What's the real lesson of the text? But safety is of the Lord. Amen. Safety is of the Lord. We need to be assaulting the throne of heaven for God's blessing on anything we do. We could get ourselves into a can of worms the likes of which we've never seen 
and have some rogue nation bring some chemical warfare, biological warfare, or a nuclear weapon into this country, and the next damage will make what happened at the World Trade Center look like nothing. Lord, help us. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. Do you know why I'm teaching you this right now? When you're watching the television or when you're reading the newspaper and your children see all the military preparedness that we're making and all the precautionary safety measures at airports, what you want to remind them is safety is of the Lord. Amen. Safety is of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 1. Let's move on. Proverbs chapter 1. Calling on God in a disaster is too little and too late most of the time. Our God is too wise to be used as a fire escape. Ever heard that expression before? Using prayer to God as a fire escape? I want, I, want to I want to show you what God says about people who don't pray to him until they're in trouble. Now, God is merciful. I know a man. I know a man who prayed to the Lord Jesus Christ when he was in deep trouble. He was about to expire on, the cro on a cross on Calvary's mountain. And he said, Lord... Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. But you listen to those words. That sounds a whole lot more sincere than, Oh my God! Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And he had just rebuked his fellow thief for railing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Now that man, Jesus answered with, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Amen. But for the most part, when men wait until the hour of disaster to call out to the Lord, Here's what he does. And this should be sober to all of us to make sure we're calling in the days of prosperity also, not just in adversity. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But ye have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. That is a sober warning. Amen. That if we have neglected God in times of prosperity, in times of when he is offering us his truth, when we as a nation have not sought him first and put him first, when we get into trouble and we call, look what it says. These are not the words of Jonathan Crosby. These are the words of the Most High God. I will laugh at your calamity. Do we have a nation that has set at naught all of God's counsel? Amen. And with none of my reproof? Amen. Does the word of God reprove sodomites? Amen. Does the word of God reprove same-sex marriages? Does the word of God reprove evolution? Does the word of God reprove abortion? Amen. Does the word of God approve the gratuitous violence on television and movies? The pornography? the divorces, the fornication, the adultery, the drunkenness? Does the Word of God reprove all that? Amen. We've set His reproof at naught. And when we cry unto Him as a nation, He's going to laugh at our calamity. 
unless he's merciful, brethren. Right. Unless he's merciful for the sake of the righteous in it, or this nation has a revival. And there's no sign of revival. No, no sign at all of revival. Brethren, we don't need to hear our Senate and House sing, God bless America. We need to have a camera view of our Congress in sackcloth and ashes somewhere on the grounds of our capital Amen. city, right. praying to God, God be merciful to us sinners. That's what we need to see. More than God is going to bless our enemies is foolish presumption if you're not going to regard God's word. Amen. Righteousness is the only cure. Look at Proverbs 14. Proverbs chapter 14. Verse 34. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. A great military doesn't exalt a nation. An intelligent government doesn't exalt a nation. A hard-working people doesn't exalt a nation, most of all, though those three things have their place. Righteousness exalts a nation, and we are no longer a righteous nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. We are a sinful and a wicked country. Repentance and righteousness is the cure, not better safety measures and a called-up reserve Self-examination and repentance are what we ought to do. Amen. Look at, turn to Joshua 7 with me, please. Joshua chapter 7. I want you to look at a military campaign that didn't go as expected and what the reaction of godly men should be. Joshua chapter 7. Joshua has marched himself and his army and the, and the children of Israel around Jericho seven days, and the city has fallen down, and they've taken it without the loss of a single life. This great city of Jericho walled up to heaven, according to the spies' report. They took it without losing a life. So when they were finished with Jericho, they turned to the next city, and there it was up on a hill named Ai. And now they were a little proud. You know, because of what we did in Iraq, we're a little proud of what we're going to do in Afghanistan. Just follow with me. Because Jericho had been so easy, AI is going to be easy. We only need to send 5,000. Maybe 3,000. It's right here in, in Joshua chapter 7. My, my memory just slept me. Slipped 3,000. They sent 3,000. We don't need to send everybody. Just send 3,000. Let's just send the special forces. So they go up toward AI. The men of AI come out and whip up on them. And there are 36 men killed. What does Joshua do? And this is what I wish our commander-in-chief would do. And I say that with all due respect because you all know that I do support our president. But I wish this is what he would do. Joshua chapter 7 and verse 6. And Joshua rent his clothes. Do you know what he could have done? He could have sent 97,000 more so that he was sending 100,000. He could have sent the cavalry. Look what he did. Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord 
until the eventide. He and the elders of Israel and put dust upon their heads. That's why I said what I said. The cure for this nation is for our Congress and our president and our cabinet and his cabinet to put dust on their heads and lay before the Lord and beg for his mercy and repent and change this nation. To go to battle without changing things first is a frightening prospect. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, and he prays, and he, and he reasons with the Lord as to why they just lost that battle. That is the godly response. And that is not what we're seeing in our nation. I could give you more examples. Brother, my time is just racing away from me. There's an outline. Let's see, on that particular point, there's about 25 examples. I gave you one. I hope that you like the one. I mean, it's Joshua. Military campaigns that are stymied. What's the cure? More weapons? More soldiers? or repentance before God to find out what's wrong. And what was wrong? One man had sinned in the camp. One man. His name was Achan. One man had sinned, and so God judged the nation. 36 men had to die because of one sinner. There's not one in this country. There's a whole lot more than Achan. Turn to Psalm 9, 17, my last point. That, of course, is a last main point. Psalm 9. This is a verse that we read this morning. Verse 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Psalm 9, 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. The future for America is dark. The future for America is dark. It doesn't matter how many volunteers show up in New York City to carry rubble away. It doesn't matter how many people line up to give blood to the Red Cross. It doesn't matter how many reservists come back and they're in shape. It doesn't matter what weapons we have. It comes down to the fact, is God with us or is he against us? And if he's against us, the future for America is dark. And there is no reason for him to be for us. Unless he will have mercy upon this nation for the righteous within it, and we are going to do our part. If he would save Sodom and Gomorrah for ten souls, might he save America for the souls in this room if we live holy lives and seek him with our whole hearts? We have prayed that way for the 17 years that I have known you people. We have prayed as if the security and prosperity of this nation depended on our prayers. We have prayed that way. That's the way we ought to pray. Amen. God doesn't need large numbers. Remember, he had five men that by themselves saved nations and cities. Remember that. Don't ever forget that. Prayer is a powerful weapon. Amen. It's better than anything that DOD has right now. Amen. Right. But the future for America is dark unless there's a revival. And unless God's merciful for the righteous within this nation. Instead of proudly talking about our military might, why don't we do what the king of Nineveh did? Jonah came into that city and said, God's going to burn this place up in 40 days. What did the king of Nineveh do? He repented in sackcloth and ashes and put the whole nation in sackcloth and ashes, including the beasts. There were kitty cats running around at your house with a little piece of burlap 
strapped onto them. I'm serious. Go read it. It's in Jonah chapter 3. Every man and beast and child in that city put on sackcloth. And the king said, in spite of what Jonah's saying, if we turn and seek God, he might have mercy upon us. And he did have mercy upon them. And that city was spared and saved by their repentance. And Jesus Christ used that example. Because he was greater than Jonah. And the Jews would not repent even though he was preaching the gospel to them. But what an example. If wicked Nineveh, not the Lord's chosen people, but a pagan city could be saved within 40 days from God's guaranteed judgment, we can be saved if this nation would repent. But the future is dark because I don't see any repentance. And brethren, the Lord has a principle and a rule. To whom much is given, much shall be required. And this nation has been given more than other nations. Therefore, we owe the Lord more than other nations. But we're not giving Him that. We are more wicked than many nations. And the Lord's going to hold us responsible. We have so many sins in this nation, the blood of abortion. Our Supreme Court and our legislation has blood all over their hands from abortion. And we could go right on down the list. The list of crimes in this nation is great. And it is long. And there is no repentance. All they do is sing God bless America. Talk about a military call up. And new precautions at airports. We are in the perilous times of the last day. They got together for a prayer meeting. When you hear that the president's called for a prayer meeting. There's excitement in your heart. But then when you watch it. You're totally disillusioned and disgusted by it all. Because you know that it's not pleasing to Jesus Christ, because they're violating so many things that His Word says. The future of America is dark. Brethren, the swelling of emotion in our country is nationalism. It's not Christianity. Make sure you're able to divide between the two. Christianity does not equal Americanism. Americanism does not equal Christianity. They're not synonyms. But we tend to think they're synonyms because we've been brought up that way, that this is God's country. What's the expression? America is God, country, baseball, and apple pie. Americanism and Christianity are not synonyms. Americanism is nationalism. It is no better, it is no better than the nationalism of the people we're going to have to go against. They believe their nation is, their nation is right and their religion is right. What we must have in our lives is Christianity and the holiness of a sanctified life under Jesus Christ. We are strangers and pilgrims in this earth. If my sons get called up, my sons had better perform themselves, had better perform well. And we had all better perform well as citizens of this nation, but it comes second. Because first of all, we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Jesus Christ is our king and we are strangers and pilgrims here and we are still looking for a country because this country is not our inheritance. Our country is in heaven. Abraham was that way and all the saints have been that way. We are wandering through this world. We do not have a permanent dwelling place. Heaven is our permanent dwelling place. Whatever we're called to do as citizens in our fate, in our discharge of our duties to protect our nation, we do them well. But we do them after 
We humble ourselves before God and make sure our hearts are right with Him. Right. We don't have true allegiance on earth. Our, by that I mean, our first allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. Do not let the fervor of nationalism that's sweeping this country right now deceive you into believing there's a spiritual revival because there isn't a spiritual revival. If there was a spiritual revival, there'd be fasting and prayer and the reading of God's Word and the changing of laws. But there isn't. And that's why it's scary. And brethren, I, I have every bit of it in my heart that you have. My heart goes into a rage in an instant. Those little people want to pick on us, nuke them. But brethren, that swelling of emotion is not fed from the Spirit of God. That's right. That swelling of emotion is what the media wants to accomplish right now. What we need to do first is have a swelling of emotion toward the Most High God Amen. and holy living and put away our sins as a congregation, as individuals, and as families first Amen. and trust the Lord and then do our duty that we're called to do for our nation. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's ruling with the rod of iron. He lifted that rod a little bit this past Tuesday. Amen. Brethren, I hope you liked the verse I sent you on Wednesday morning, Psalm 18.2. It says that the Lord is nine things to us, but the last thing he is, and the one I hope comforted your souls, he is our high tower. Amen. We saw two high towers come down like we would have never imagined that they would come down. That's right. But the Lord Jesus Christ is our high tower. He's our pavilion in a verse that we read in Psalm 27, yep. and we should run to him and hide. The Bible says this, Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ... Depart from iniquity. Amen. When we hear and read about that religion that's motivating those on the other side, and it's a horrible religion, there'll be more to be said on that. But when we speak about that religion or we think about it, let us who have named the name of Christ, not the name of Muhammad, but the name of Jesus Christ, let us who have named his name depart from iniquity. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. God have mercy upon us if we rail on other religions and we are not living holy lives ourselves. Right. Like I told you this morning what I would end with, our lives in holiness had better equal or surpass our rhetoric, what we're saying, or we of all men are the greatest hypocrites. Amen. Let's let this event drive us to the mercy seat where we can find grace to help in time of need. Amen. And then after that, the greatest citizens and the greatest soldiers the world has ever seen are those that put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May the Lord have mercy upon us and upon our nation. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Amen.